they have a culture where they value their people. They're not sending them in as cannon fodder. Russia doesn't give a shit. You know, that has always been Russia's way to win a war, is to just clog the meat grinder. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, April 28th. Today, Julia Yaffe joins me with the download from her transatlantic flight with General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who flew to Europe last week for meetings about the ongoing war between Ukraine and Russia. Milley is a self-described realist about the war, and some of his public musings about the conflict have irked the White House. Julia, who spent hours with Millie on the trip, explains how the chairman is thinking about a possible endgame in Europe. And later, Eric Gardner stops by to talk about Fox News' other massive legal headache, another defamation suit, this one for $2.7 billion. Is Rupert Murdoch losing his leverage in the settlement negotiations? We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for Powers That Be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy friday everybody if you're in dc hope you're enjoying white house correspondence dinner weekend try to get some sleep i'm joined today by someone who actually really needs sleep and not just from drinking Peacock-themed cocktails at NBC parties in D.C. or whatever you're drinking this weekend. It's Julia Yaffe. Julia, please tell Powers That Be listeners the amount of miles you've logged (laughs) in the last few days. Oh, my God. Way too many. Basically, I got back from Europe on Wednesday afternoon. I had to be at Joint Base Andrews at 5 a.m. on Thursday, at which point I boarded Chairman Milley's flight to Ramstein Air Base in Germany. And then that Friday, so the next day, 
we got back on that plane and flew back to Joint Base Andrews. So it was three transatlantic flights in three days. And boy, are my arms tired. (laughs) At least you didn't have to go through TSA. So you wrote about this trip with General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He oversees our entire U.S. military apparatus. By the way, sure does. Shout out, shout out to Puck, but also you specifically for holding down this lane for Puck. You're on a flight with the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You and a reporter from AFP. I mean, how far we have come in just a little over a year. That's pretty <laughs> cool. Tell us why uh, you were invited on this lovely transatlantic voyage, and what did you guys talk about? So. I was invited because the chairman was going to the Ukraine contact group or the Ukraine defense contact group, which means meets about every month or two at the Ramstein Air Base in Germany, which is an American air base. And it is headed by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. And there's about 50 countries, the number fluctuates, that come and sit at the table and they talk and they coordinate what kind of military aid they're going to give to Ukraine. And, you know, put the tax on the holdouts or try to. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we have been trying to get this trip to happen before, but the stars actually lined up this time. And so away I went. What is Millie's outlook on the war right now? In your interview with him, he describes himself as a realist. I feel like in the post Iraq, Afghanistan era, anyone who says they aren't a realist is kind of the outlier at this point. Uh, but what is his realist take on the Russian invasion? Well, I should say that there's quite a bit of frustration with Millie. So before I went on this trip and I was, you know, talking to my sources in Washington, what should I ask him? And they were like, oh, okay. And they all had some variation of the same thing, which is like, does he even want Ukraine to win? Because he's so relentlessly negative. And is that the Biden administration's policy? What has he said, though, that, that gives them that impression that he's negative about the war? He says that Ukraine can't win this war militarily that there's no way that they're going to be able to claw back all that territory that Russia has conquered without catastrophic losses or without tripping the nuclear wire, you know, if they try to take Crimea. And he also says that Russia can't win militarily either, that this is just going to be a stalemate. And, you know, Milley, he talks a lot about how he went to Princeton, you know, and he fancies himself a scholar of history. And I, th- I think, to be fair, a lot of um, kind of senior officers in the U.S. military, you know, they have quite a bit of education and, mm-hmm. you know, they're trained and taught to think big. And mm-hmm. I think the way he sees it is that, you know, if this is a World War One type uh, scenario where you have this dynamic, bloody stalemate, why not end it now? instead of waiting another three years and, you know, it costing another several hundred thousand lives mm-hmm. because he just doesn't fundamentally doesn't see it militarily. He can't see Ukraine getting it over the finish line and he can't see Russia getting it over the finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be fair, there are military, you know, there are many military experts who think that too. You know, Russia's really dug in. We all poo-pooed their mobilization drive in the fall, but they did end up, you know, about a million people fled, but Putin did get his 300,000 soldiers and they've arrived at the front and those are all still bodies Ukraine has to fight through. They've created, Russia has created 
trenches that you can see from space. They're massive and they're dug in. It's going to be bloody. And the question is, is Ukraine even going to get much out of it? I think that you're right, that post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan, there isn't you know, and the kind of more hawkish people in D.C. criticize the Biden administration and Milley for being, quote unquote, negative, which I kind of sympathize with because I get, you know, I get dragged for being negative when I just think I'm, you know, just doing the analysis, right? And looking at the facts before me. And, you know, if it's not a very good set of facts or they leave, lead in one direction or another, that's not me. It's not like I want it to end badly. Uh, so I think that's kind of where the chairman is, that as a general, as an experienced soldier, as a student of history, he just doesn't see it. Yeah, I mean, not to invoke another Princeton reference, but I just finished a book called American Midnight by Adam Hochschild, and basically it's about World War One and how it played out here and how mm-hmm. Princeton grad Woodrow Wilson kind of cracked down on dissent. He cracked down on labor, newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. But I hadn't had like a real World War One refresher in a while. Mm-hmm. Need those. You know, yeah. it was pretty much a stalemate until the U.S. got in. And it wasn't because the U.S. overwhelmed <laughs> Germany with their strategic brilliance. It was just bodies. It was manpower, you exactly. know, and then Germany just ran out. And here... You know, the Russians are the ones losing bodies, but um, so Ukraine are the Ukrainians. Have, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, Ukraine doesn't have the numbers to just keep throwing <laughs> people at Russia. Well, and they have a different culture now, too. They have a culture where they value their people. They're not sending them in as cannon fodder. They don't want to. Uh, mm-hmm. Russia doesn't give a shit. You know, that has always been Russia's way to win a war is to mm-hmm. just clog the meat grinder, you know, till it breaks. But Ukraine has become a very Western country and a European country. They value their people. They value human life, whereas Mm -hmm. Russians don't. And Mm -hmm. it was a really sad and worrying moment for me when this Ukrainian journalist came up to me when we were at Ramsey. There was a lot of, you know, like at all these things, a lot of sitting around and waiting uh, while the important people are in meetings that you can't witness. And there were Ukrainian journalists there and I had chatted them up earlier because I heard them speaking Russian. And one of them then came over to me later in the day and he's like, hey, by the way, what are people saying in Washington? Are they going to keep supporting us? And he was so nervous and so worried. And he's like, because I just think we're running out of people. Mm. And I asked a lot of people that. I asked Millie that. I asked Jens Stoltenberg that. And they were like, no, I think we're fine. We're not seeing that. And I asked some other um, U.S. military officials who were there for the meeting. But that is not the first time I've heard that from a Ukrainian. And, you know, the numbers would indicate that. So, again, it's like, I think the only way Ukraine wins is if Russia kind of collapses under its own weight, in part like the way Germany did in World War One. So two follow-ups to that. One, um, I just realized I've always, I've been at such a deficit in terms of sourcing, because I really only speak English. The fact that you speak multiple languages, <laughs> God bless you. You get <laughs> you get more sources, more languages, more sources. But two, so another thing he told you in your interview with him aboard the plane to Europe was, and look, Millie spoke at our Puck event in DC and spoke about the First Amendment and how we need to protect it. And he talked to you about international norms. And, you know, if 
Ukraine loses, he was saying that'd be a victory for China and that'd be a victory for Russia. And and beyond that, it would be a victory for people who think they can break the rules. And so how does he square the idea of like, Ukraine can't win with, we need to, <laughs> we need to beat Russia? Was that what, or was that just the brass tacks of what this meeting was about? This That's what this meeting was about, is like, let's keep giving Ukraine more and more military aid. Let's not stop now. Personally, I don't see it a dissonance there. I think saying that he doesn't see a path toward a military victory to Ukraine militarily winning every inch of their territory and restoring their 1991 borders, which means Crimea, all of the Donbass, etc., and mm-hmm. saying they have to win in some shape or another and Russia has to lose. And I thought it was actually compelling the way he explained or saw the rules-based international order, which Russia critiques, China critiques, a lot of people in the West critique as saying that, you know, America violates its own rules all the time, which is true. But he had a really narrow, what I realized was interesting, he had a very narrow definition Uh of what this rules-based, international rules-based order was. I mean, people don't like it because we wrote the rules, right? People like China (laughs) and Russia. All it meant for him, or mostly what it meant for him, was that it has prevented a great power war for the last mm-hmm. 80 years. Mm-hmm. Basically, the kind of World War One, World War Two, where you have these giant powers duking it out militarily, that this rules-based order doesn't preclude smaller wars, but it keeps it from, it keeps them from becoming world wars. And I found that to be a compelling argument because my family lost dozens of people in World War Two. Mm-hmm. These... You know, and I'm I'm from a Soviet Jewish family. We still bear those scars and pass them down. These were horrific events. If you lived in Asia, if you lived in Europe, for America, people went away to war and came back. But where I'm from, the war was right there. And it was mass, insanely destructive, completely life-altering. And if the goal is to prevent that, rather than like it becoming more and more wishy-washy, I get, mm-hmm. I get that. And again, it's like, a, it's a soldier's view, right? It's a military view. Like, this is the point. And in that sense, he was saying, you know, we also don't want to create the thing that we're trying to prevent by getting the US pulled into this even more directly mm-hmm. by Russia using nuclear weapons, etc. So, you know, it's like this fine balancing act that I think the Biden administration and the Pentagon see, but I think from the outside, it can be very frustrating, including to people like me who think that, you know, this, even if it's not realistic in terms of military analysts tell me this is not realistic, but like there is no silver bullet and it's not like the U.S. can come in and win this for Ukraine. So, Mm -hmm. but it is frustrating for those of us who are watching the slaughter of Ukrainians and the destruction of Ukraine being like, why can't somebody end this? I have a hunch, only having seen Millie really at that puck party, that he, despite being a military guy, and I won't ask you your off-the-record conversations with him, but I'm sure he liked hearing your perspectives, honestly, like your like your personal story and your family story. Like humanizing some of this stuff is important. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, the the better elected officials sometimes sometimes do listen to journalists and learn from them too. Julia, thank you so much. Try to get some sleep. Thank you for flying across the Atlantic Ocean for Puck. We appreciate it. I'm happy to take that bullet for Puck. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. 
When we come back, Eric Gardner's here to talk about Fox's other defamation lawsuit. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Eric, the Fox News Dominion lawsuit ended last week with a $787.5 million settlement, which deprived us all of having to watch Tucker Carlson on the witness stand. But in the the pall of that disappointment, I, I think a lot of people are forgetting that this story is not actually over. There is a very, very similar defamation suit still rolling forward on the docket from Smartmatic, which is another voting machine company that is also suing Fox News. Just briefly, what are some of the important similarities and differences between these two cases? Yeah, so Smartmatic is another election tech company. They are unlike Dominion in that most of their business is overseas. I think they only have, you know, one district that they do in the United States. They brought their lawsuit first, a libel lawsuit, but New York courts are a lot slower than Delaware courts, basically because everything can get appealed before trial. So that case has kind of crawled along, still ongoing. The big difference is that Smartmatic is, is, you know, targeting huge damages, you know, even greater than $1.6 billion. They're targeting $2.7 billion based on, you know, some calculations about lost business overseas. A little unclear exactly what they're basing their their damages estimates on. But uh, overall, there's a lot of similarities in the case. You know, some of them are based on the same statements. Statements like Dominion was owned by Smartmatic and, you know, they were doing nefarious things in these foreign countries and and so forth. So uh, I expect that Smartmatic will be using basically the same roadmap, the same attempts to get discovery and to get text messages and depositions with with executives. And uh, who knows when this actually will go to trial, maybe sometime in the next couple of years. But Fox News needs to clear this too. So they got rid of the, the Dominion case, but this still is outstanding. You reported yesterday that you think Smartmatic will also likely settle this case, probably before a trial even begins. What is the game theory there for their lawyers and investors? And why are they asking for this $2.7 billion, which is more than a billion more than Dominion demanded? It's about $2 billion more than that case actually settled for. What what is sort of their legal strategy heading in here if it is, in fact, different at all from how Dominion approached the case? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's going to settle because, I mean, that's basically the rational thing to happen. One plaintiff puts forward this huge damages award and, you know, the other one fights it. But in the end of the day, the insurers pick up some of the money and there's lots of calculations about, you know, the worth of avoiding the witness stand and all that. And then you settle in the middle. Um, I think that the Smartmatic case might even be easier to settle because now there's some sort of precedent. There's some sort of market rate for, for what this 
case might sell for. So, you know, the parties can look to that as a benchmark. And I don't know how, how hard Smartmatic is sticking to its $2.7 billion. We still haven't seen their expert report about damages, what they're basing it on. So it's hard to, you know, figure out whether they have a better case or a weaker case with respect to damages. But the liability issues are about the same. They're based on the same statements. And I think a lot of the calculus that goes into Rupert Murdoch and Suzanne Scott and everyone wanting to avoid the witness stand, that still stands. So I would expect it to settle and settle quickly. The only thing that caused me some pause was some word that that there might have been a third party litigation funder in the Smartmatic case. Uh, evidently, Smartmatic has uh, just you know fessed up that there there is none. Um, so without that patron potentially just providing some sort of you know X factor to this whole case, I think that you know cooler heads prevail and and they'll both you know come to some smart business decision. You're talking about someone like Reid Hoffman, the Democratic billionaire who who was recently revealed to be bankrolling the part of the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit against Donald Trump, or or to look at a Republican example, obviously, Peter Thiel is sort of the, the prototypical Republican example for having bankrolled the Hulk Hogan case against Gawker that ultimately demolished that company. Had there been someone involved like that, is the idea that then Smartmatic would be less likely to settle because they have someone standing behind them ready to backstop their, their legal expenses? I think it's not just someone to backstop their legal expenses. It's also, you know, some sort of non-economic agenda. It's, you know, a spiteful potential agenda. Um, you know, I don't think that Hoffman really cares about his financial return in the Gene Carroll case. I don't think that Peter Thiel really cared about, you know, getting millions from Gawker. They like basically wanted to put their adversary under the ground. They wanted to, you know, embarrass their opponent at trial and, and do as much damage as possible. Um, so it was possible that if Rupert Murdoch had this mystery enemy, that that could compel the Smartmatic case to to trial and that there was nothing that Fox News could do to, to get out of it. They could have picked $2.7 billion, not because they thought that was their damage, but $2.7 billion was, you know, just some fly by nine number that, you know, they just said, you know, hey, let's, we got to come up with something. Let's just, you know, do something outrageous. Uh, it, it was possible that if there was someone out there who was kind of bankrolling the case, then yeah, then maybe, you know, Rupert Murdoch would have had difficulty in, in selling this one. And he could still have difficulty. The parties could dig in. What's interesting, one of the things here is that Smartmatic is represented by a lawyer who used to be a partner with one of the lawyers who is representing Fox News. In fact, Smartmatic's lawyer once called Fox News's lawyer his mentor. Uh, so I, there's some personal interest here as well. Uh, but we'll see, we'll see where it all goes. I think that this case could become interesting if it doesn't settle. My first bet would be on settlement. But if not, um, I think that you know a lot of reporters will be gathered again uh, to see the, the redux. Eric, you also reported yesterday that it's almost certainly the fact that Fox Corporation, the parent company of Fox News, is not actually going to end up paying for a lot of this Dominion settlement. We, we don't know the exact amount, but they do have insurance. They do have this wraparound umbrella policy around the parent company. Do you think that those insurers will sue Fox to get out of paying that full amount? Or, or is that basically just a predictable procedural steps that they end up compromising on some kind of number in the middle? 
I think it's quite possible we could see litigation over it. Going back a few years, uh, ABC was famously sued over its pink slime coverage. And after that case settled, Disney paid at least $177 million to, for that settlement. It settled right in the middle of trial. But uh, a couple months afterwards, uh, one of the insurers turned around and sued Disney and, and said that we weren't responsible for, for this. Uh, similarly, we could see something like that here. Uh, I think what's noteworthy about the settlement and the statement that came out from Fox News, a company Accompanying the settlement was they acknowledged that, you know, there were falsehoods uttered on the air, but they didn't take any responsibility for it. They didn't say that these were intentionally done. And if you look at most insurance policies, there's an exclusion for, you know, actual malice for intentional acts. And so Fox News wouldn't go there. And I think, you know, most people thought, you know, they're not going that apology route because they think a lot about themselves and you know it, it's just too much for for Rupert Murdoch to admit a, a wrong but you know it's quite possible that they didn't do that because that would have set off an exclusion in their insurance policy i think that's actually probably what happened and uh, what happens right now is that Fox will probably tend to reclaim to their insurers. Their insurers will write back and, and you know, provide uh, an opinion about whether that they tend to honor the claim. And uh, if they don't see eye to eye, they'll, you know, there'll be litigation. There's lots of litigation over th these things. Right now, there's litigation over Amber Heard and her insurers, whether, you know, she's getting reimbursed for, for that settlement with, with Johnny Depp. And so, you know, this stuff happens all the time. But, you know, one thing that, that should be stressed here is that everyone reports, you know, this is going to, hit, you know, hurt, uh, you know, Rupert Murdoch's wallet. It, the corporation's wallet. Well, in actuality, the, the corporation might not be paying that much at all. And wh who it's going to hurt is other companies whose insurance premiums are going to go up as a result of this massive settlement. Right. So, so MSNBC and CNN will probably be paying more for their own legal insurance as a result of premiums rising across the board. Um, it's pretty funny. Is Fox also going to be able to write off this settlement as, as a sort of expense on their taxes? Yeah, uh, that's another way that, that they might be able to diminish whatever liability they have for, for, for this case. I mean, that's one of the things that, that will likely happen. Uh, you know, the, they, whatever payment they do make, whatever payment's not paid by the insurers, um, they're going to, you know, structure it in such a way that, you know, they take full advantage economically of, of how this has all gone down. If it's so important for Fox News that they don't apologize, that, that, that apologizing triggers this provision in their insurance that basically negates it. Does that not give a huge amount of leverage to Smartmatic in their negotiations over what this eventual settlement is going to look like? Uh, it's possible. I, you know, I, I always thought that, you know, the apology push was always overstated. I'm not sure exactly how the rumor got started that that's what Dominion wanted, or that's what Smartmatic wants right now. I think in some respects, it was wishful thinking because, you know, plaintiffs usually are out for money. They're represented by lawyers who are out for money. There's, you know, tens of millions of dollars that are, are spent uh, on this litigation. And it's uh, a little naive, I think, to think that they'll take some sort of discount, you know, because of, of an apology. I think what happens is that the parent company was dragged in almost perfectly 
purposefully to set off the the bigger insurance uh, pots so that they could you know access that that money and, and you know potentially you know pave the way towards a settlement I don't think it really gives them leverage per se I, I just think that that you know every side is is thinking strategically and trying to arrive at you know what makes most economic sense for them all right well thanks Eric this has been totally fascinating thanks as always my pleasure Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.